Greetings this morning, in Jesus' name. I'm a little uh, scattered this morning, I guess I can say that. Uh, my wife and I were out to. It's working. Okay. My wife and I were out to Ohio for the uh, orientation for the Salt and Light program. We got back late last night, so I'm sort of overflowing from some of that and trying to figure out how to get that some of those thoughts into a message this morning, and it kind of took a little different path. So um, maybe I'll open with a word of prayer. Why don't we why don't we stand, and maybe I'll have a brother or two pray, and then I'll close. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to be together this morning. Thank you for your, your good word, Lord. Thank you for the word of God. Father, we pray for Brother Tyler as he had a busy, a busy a week here, Lord, with travels, and pray you'll give him words, Lord, to speak and inspire him, Lord, to speak your your words, Lord. And without you, dear God, we can do nothing. So, Father, we we love you, and we thank you for this opportunity to be here and worship you, and we look to you for bread from heaven. In Jesus' name, I pray. Yes, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we can gather together as believers to sing praises to you, to hear your word. Father, just pray that you would use me as a channel this morning for your word to flow through. Father, pray that you would work these things in my own heart also. Father, we none of us have arrived. We all we all are on a journey, Father. Just pray that you would lead us, guide us as a as a church body. Pray that you bless the remainder of the service. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so I think I want to, I should back up and say this. I was thinking it'd be nice to share some from the last few days, but I had some other things on my heart, and they didn't blend together so well. So you're not getting a report from the last three days. Uh, 
I would have liked to have been able to do that, but it, there was too much to condense in the 10-hour trip home. So. Um, so these are some things that have been in my heart lately through different things that I've heard, read, um, and I, I don't have the answers. I'm just sharing what's on my heart here this morning. So I wanted to start with a few questions um, for us to just ponder. And I wasn't quite sure how to ask them or how much time was sufficient to leave for us to ponder at them. But I'll just put them out here and just kind of, if you have a pen and want to jot them down or just keep them in the back of your mind to consider as we go through the message here. Um, what are we as a church here for? What are we as a family here for? And what am I as an individual? What am I personally here for? What is my purpose here on earth? What is the purpose of this body here on earth? Or the church as a whole? So those are a couple questions that I don't know if I'll actually give answers to them, but we're going to kind of uh, look at some things pertaining to those questions. Yeah, yeah. Um, what are we here for as a church? What are we here for as a family? What are we here for as an individual? What is our purpose here on earth? And you might... Um, we all look at things maybe from a little different angle. Um, We're all looking at the same thing. We're all reading from the same Bible. We might all write off, uh, you know, right off the tip of our tongue have a different answer for that question. What are we here for? Um, But there's a couple verses that I think speak really well to it, and I want to go there uh, first and then see where we go after that, I guess. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.18 2 Corinthians 5.18 And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. (coughs) Sorry. And hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. So I think what I want to do is just talk about a couple of the words in here. Uh, maybe give some definitions. A definition for the word uh, reconciliation. Uh, Christ, these are mostly my own definitions, so I don't expect to find this in the Strong's or somewhere, but Christ came to open up the pathway to favor with God. That's uh, one way to look at reconciliation. And then when he left and he went back to be with God, he left us with the keys to that pathway. He charged us with the responsibility to 
bring others into favor with God. He has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Bringing others into favor with God. To bring them along that pathway of being reconciled to God. Not that we can change someone, but we have the tools to lead them in that direction. Uh, Verse uh, 20, I guess it is, uses the word ambassadors. A person who acts as a representative or a promoter of a specified activity. So if we are ambassadors, that means we are representatives or promoters of Christ. We should be promoting His agenda. And what did He come to the world to do? Verse 18. uh, Who hath reconciled us to Him. Or verse 19, I guess, is what I was looking for. Reconciling the world unto Himself. Another question that came to mind here is, what does it look like to be a reconciler? I'm not sure what comes to your mind when you think of that, but just ponder that. What does it look like to be a reconciler? And then, am I fulfilling this commission? Are we, as a church, fulfilling this commission of being reconcilers? Bringing people into favor with God. I'm going to go to Colossians and look at another verse here. It might not seem connected at first, but uh, bear with me. I'll try to explain my my, uh, thought process here a little bit. Colossians 4, verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time. I was thinking of that redeeming the time, and often when we think of that, at least in my mind, I often think of seconds, minutes, hours, um, not wasting time, um, I'm not sure what all thoughts come to your mind there. That's only a small portion of the picture, I think. Um, One thing I did is I actually read that verse in my Indonesian Bible. And that's kind of what gave me a little bit different picture there of that verse. Uh, The translation of that is in your relationship with unbelievers, make sure you live wisely and make the best use of every opportunity. So rather than uh, just making sure that we're busy all the time, you know, we're not wasting any seconds or minutes of the day, it's every opportunity we have with unbelievers, um, walking, toward, walking in wisdom towards them that are without, without being the unbelievers. Every opportunity we have or, um, to make the most of every opportunity that we have. 
And I, I then went and looked in the uh, Amplified, and it kind of gave the same picture. Conduct yourself with wisdom in your interactions with outsiders or non-believers and make the most of each opportunity, treating it as something precious. And that really caught my attention. And that kind of goes uh, along with a little bit of what we heard this last few days. Being intentional about our, our interaction with the community around us, with the unbelievers. Not looking at it as they're taking up my time, but treating it as something precious. That was really a challenge to me. Um, I, when I read that in the Amplified, I wasn't really quite sure what to, what to do or to say about it. It just really struck me. How often do I, do I treat that as precious? More often, I think, at least for me, I think our, you know, I'm going about my work day and, uh, you know, I have an agenda, I have things I need to get done. Um, I don't have time for this. But then I go back to, what is our purpose here? Uh, Ephesians 5.16 uses the same phrase, redeeming the time. Um, the translation in the Amplified was actually the same for both verses. Conduct yourself with wisdom in your interactions with outsiders and make the most of each opportunity. And I think that it could go without saying, but I'll go ahead and just say it here, that making the most of every opportunity is, is to further the kingdom. That's the purpose of, of the redeeming that time, of, of making the most of that, is to further the kingdom of God. Um, as I was preparing, I thought of a short list of things here that we are called to be. We're called to be disciples, um, witnesses, we're called to be salt, light. Uh, we're called the, the bride of Christ, sons of God, ambassadors, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a peculiar people. I'm sure there's many more. Um, I didn't specifically look for any. I just, those are just what came to mind. And I was thinking about it. You know, a lot of those things carry a little bit similar of an idea. Think of the ambassadors, um, witnesses, a light, a peculiar people. Um, you think of all those things, and they kind of give the same uh, the same idea as uh, reconcilers. I lost the word there for a second. Um, uh, that idea of reconciling. We're we're here to make an impression on the people around us because of what Christ has done in us. And a lot of those things would, would give that picture. We're called to be representatives of Christ to the world around us. It's a call for all believers, all believers everywhere, and for all time.
Okay, it looks like a difficult task. Think about it. I talked about that in the last message I had. The, uh, um, the unreached. I put some numbers on the board. Um, kind of gave a picture of the task ahead of us, I guess, for, for people to hear and to know the truth about God or to have an opportunity to hear it. Um, it looks like a big task. Many people try to throw programs at that to, you know, to make sure everybody's getting covered and, and all of that. But that's not really what we're called to do. It's not my job personally to reach everyone in the world. But my place here in my notes. What it takes is me being able to put one foot in front of the other. It's a, it's a lifestyle. The idea of being a reconciler, it's a lifestyle. It's not a... It's not a... thing that we... Well, today I'm going to go out and try to find somebody to reconcile. You might pray in the morning that God brings somebody in your path that you can, that you can uh, share with or work with there. That's different than the idea of, well, today's the day that I have free time to go, to go fulfill that calling. Um, it's a big task. We just need to put one foot in front of the other. I was thinking of an ambassador of a country, um, Governor Branstead, former governor of Iowa, is the ambassador to China. Uh, he got put in there when Trump was elected president. Uh, part of the reason was with Iowa and the soybeans and shipping to China, and uh, Branstead had a lot of connections there already. Um, he was the longest-serving governor here of Iowa, one of the top soybean-producing states, so I'm, I'm sure a lot of those connections played into that. But... He's there in China um, representing the United States. That's his job. That's what, he's, that's what he was uh, hired to do. That's what he was... Um, he probably could have denied the position if he didn't want it, I guess. So that's what he was asked to do. He was called to do. And I thought about it like this. You know, even if he's got some personal things. I don't know if he has business here in the States that he has to think about or, or what he all has going on, but it doesn't matter what else he has going on. His position is an ambassador to China of the United States, representing the U.S.'s interests there in China. Uh, I thought of it like this. Even if he would have a death in the family or some other circumstance, you know, he would probably get time off for dealing with that, but he still is holding that position as ambassador, a representation of the United States in China. So when I'm busy with my work, is it okay if I shelve my ambassadorship and just do it when I have free time? because it may interfere with my schedule.
These are some of the things that I've been thinking about uh, lately, and I'm not quite sure uh, I don't know, hopefully you're, you're connecting with my thoughts here some. I uh, ran across this story here a while back, and I've listened to it a couple times since, and I'm going to try to play it for you. Uh, I do have the book. I could read it if I needed to, but I'm not sure if I would get all the way through it. So if you'll allow me to, uh, to try to do this, I'm going to try to play the story for you. Are you ready? So they arrived at a small Russian village and stopped in front of a tiny dwelling. Dmitri opened the door and graciously welcomed us into his tiny home. I want you to sit here, he instructed me. This was where I was sitting. Okay, I, uh, I just remembered I forgot to give a background. So this comes out of a book. The man has uh, been interviewing Christians who have suffered under and still are suffering under persecution. Um, and he's interviewing them, asking the question, trying to figure out how believers walk with Jesus in hard places. So this is one of many stories that he shares. Um, was that playing clear enough? Were you able to hear that okay? Or would it be better if I tried to read it? I wasn't sure if emotionally I could get through it reading it. <laughs> is that going to work? Okay, so I'll go ahead and play it. I'm going to write a couple things on the board while it's playing. If to focus on and kind of listen and follow the story, you need to put your head down and close your eyes to listen or something, that's fine. Um, what I'm writing on the board, I'm going to talk about later, so uh, we'll try again here. When the authorities came to arrest me and send me to prison for 17 years, I settled in and listened with rapt attention as Dimitri related his unforgettable personal story over the next few hours. Dimitri told me that he had been born and raised in a believing family. His parents had taken him to church as a child. Over the decades, he explained, communism slowly destroyed most of the churches and places of worship. Many pastors were imprisoned or killed. By the time he was grown, Dimitri told me, the nearest remaining church building was a three-day walk away. It was impossible for his family to attend church more than once or twice a year. One day, Dimitri told me, I said to my wife, You'll probably think that I am insane. I know that I have no religious training whatsoever, but I am concerned that our sons are growing up without learning about Jesus. This may sound like a crazy idea. But what would you think if just one night a week we gathered the boys together so I could read them a Bible story and try to give them a little of the training they are missing because we no longer have a real church? What Dimitri didn't know was that his wife had been praying for years that her husband would do something like that. She readily embraced his idea. He started teaching his family one night a week. Dimitri would read from the old family Bible. Then he would try to explain what he had just read so that his children could understand. As he relearned and retold the Bible stories, his sons soon began helping with the task. Eventually, the boys and Dimitri and his wife were telling the familiar stories back and forth to each other. The more they learned, the more the children seemed to enjoy their family worship time. Eventually, the boys started asking for more. Papa, can we sing those songs that they sing when they go to the real church? 
So Dimitri and his wife taught them the traditional songs of their faith. It seemed a natural progression for the family not only to read the Bible and sing, but also to take time together to pray, and they began to do that. Nothing could be hidden for long in small villages. Houses were close together and windows were often open. Neighbors began noticing what was going on with Dimitri's family. Some of them asked if they could come and listen to the Bible stories and sing the familiar songs. Dimitri protested that he was not trained to do this. He wasn't a minister. His excuse didn't seem to dissuade his neighbors, and a small group began gathering to share in the reading and telling and discussing of Bible stories and to sing and pray together. By the time the little group grew to 25 people, the authorities had noticed. Local party officials came to see Dimitri. They threatened him physically, which was to be expected. What upset Dimitri much more was their accusation. You have started an illegal church. How can you say that, he argued. I have no religious training. I am not a pastor. This is not a church building. We are just a group of family and friends getting together. All we are doing is reading and talking about the Bible, singing, praying, and sometimes sharing what money we have to help out a poor neighbor. How can you call that a church? I almost laughed at the irony of his claim, but this was early in my pilgrimage. I could not easily appreciate the truth that he was sharing. Looking back now, I understand that one of the most accurate ways to detect and measure the activity of God is to note the amount of opposition that is present. The stronger the persecution, the more significant the spiritual vitality of the believers. Surprisingly, all too often, Persecutors sense the activity of God before the believing participants even realize the significance of what is happening. In the case of Dimitri, the officials could sense the threat of what he was doing long before it even crossed his mind. The communist official told Dimitri, We don't care what you call it, but this looks like a church to us, and if you don't stop it, bad things are going to happen. When the group grew to 50 people, the authorities made good on their threats. I got fired from my factory job, Dimitri recounted. My wife lost her teaching position. My boys were expelled from school. And, he added, little things like that. When the number of people grew to 75, there was no place for everyone to sit. Villagers stood shoulder to shoulder, cheek to cheek, inside the house. They pressed close in around the windows on the outside, so they could listen as this man of God led the people of God in worship. Then one night, as Dimitri spoke, sitting in the chair where I was now seated, the door to his house suddenly, violently burst open. An officer and soldiers pushed through the crowd. The officer grabbed Dimitri by the shirt, slapped him rhythmically back and forth across the face, slammed him against the wall and said in a cold voice, We have warned you and warned you and warned you. I will not warn you again. If you do not stop this nonsense, this is the least that is going to happen to you. As the officer pushed his way back toward the door, a small grandmother took her life in her hands, stepped out of the anonymity of that worship community, and waved a finger in the officer's face. Sounding like an Old Testament prophet, she declared, You have laid hands on a man of God, and you will not survive. That happened on a Tuesday evening. And on Thursday night, the officer dropped dead of a heart attack. The fear of God swept through the community. At the next house church service, more than 150 people showed up, 
The authorities couldn't let this continue, so Dimitri went to jail for 17 years. I knew, because Dimitri was sitting right in front of me in his own home, that this particular persecution story was ultimately a story of survival and victory. The story would obviously have a happy ending, but that didn't mean that the story was going to be nice or easy to hear. Indeed, it was a painful story. Dimitri spoke quietly of long, heart-wrenching separation. He spoke of sweat, blood, and tears. He talked about sons growing up without their father in the house. He described a poor, struggling family enduring great hardship. This was not the kind of inspirational testimony that we love to celebrate. This was raw, biblical faith. This was the story of one man who refused to let go of Jesus and refused to stop telling the good news to his family and neighbors. As if that was not enough, the rest of Dimitri's story would be one of the most remarkable and life-changing testimonies I've ever heard. 19. A Prison Sings The authorities moved Dimitri a thousand kilometers away from his family and locked him in a prison. His cell was so tiny that when he got out of bed, it took but a single step either to get to the door of his cell, to reach the stained and cracked sink mounted on the opposite wall, or to use the foul open toilet in the far corner of the cell. Even worse, according to Dimitri, he was the only believer among 1,500 hardened criminals. He said that his isolation from the body of Christ was more difficult than even the physical torture, and there was much of that. Still, his tormentors were unable to break him. Dimitri pointed to two reasons for his strength in the face of torture. There were two spiritual habits that he had learned from his father, disciplines that Dimitri had taken with him into prison. Without these two disciplines, Dimitri insisted, his faith would not have survived. For 17 years in prison, every morning at daybreak, Dimitri would stand at attention by his bed. As was his custom, he would face the east, raise his arms and praise to God, and then he would sing a heart song to Jesus. The reaction of the other prisoners was predictable. Dimitri recounted the laughter, the cursing, the jeers. The other prisoners banged metal cups against the iron bars in angry protest. They threw food and sometimes human waste to try to shut him up and extinguish the only true light shining in that dark place every morning at dawn. There was another discipline, too, another custom that Dimitri told me about. Whenever he found a scrap of paper in the prison, he would sneak it back to his cell. There he would pull out a stub of a pencil or a tiny piece of charcoal that he had saved, and he would write on that scrap of paper as tiny as he could all the Bible verses and scriptural stories or songs that he could remember. When the scrap was completely filled, he would walk to the corner of his little jail cell where there was a concrete pillar that constantly dripped water, except in the wintertime when the moisture became a solid coat of ice on the inside surface of his cell. Dimitri would take the paper fragment, reach as high as he possibly could, and stick it on that damp pillar as a praise offering to God. Of course, whenever one of his jailers spotted a piece of paper on the pillar, he would come into his cell, take it down, read it, beat Dimitri severely, and threaten him with death. Still, Dimitri refused to stop his two disciplines. Every day he rose at dawn to sing his song, 
And every time he found a scrap of paper, he filled it with scripture and praise. This went on year after year after year. His guards tried to make him stop. The authorities did unspeakable things to his family. At one point, they even led him to believe that his wife had been murdered and that his children had been taken by the state. They taunted him cruelly. We have ruined your home. Your family is gone. Dimitri's resolve finally broke. He told God that he could not take any more. He admitted to his guards, You win. I will sign any confession that you want me to sign. I must get out of here to find where my children are. They told Dimitri, We will prepare your confession tonight, and then you will sign it tomorrow. Then you will be free to go. After all those years, the only thing that he had to do was sign his name on a document, saying that he was not a believer in Jesus, and that he was a paid agent of Western governments trying to destroy the USSR. Once he put his signature on that dotted line, he would be free to go. Dmitri repeated his intention. Bring it tomorrow, and I will sign it. That very night, he sat on his jail cell bed. He was in deep despair, grieving the fact that he had given up. At that same moment, a thousand kilometers away, his family, Dmitri's wife, his children who were growing up without him, and his brother, sensed through the Holy Spirit the despair of this man in prison. His loved ones gathered around the very place where I was sitting, as Dmitri told me his story. They knelt in a circle and began to pray out loud for him. Miraculously, the Holy Spirit of the living God allowed Dmitri to hear the voices of his loved ones as they prayed. The next morning, when the guards marched into his cell with the documents, Dmitri's back was straight. His shoulders were squared, and there was strength on his face and in his eyes. He looked at his captors and declared, I am not signing anything. The guards were incredulous. They had thought that he was beaten and destroyed. What happened? They demanded to know. Dmitri smiled and told them. In the night, God let me hear the voices of my wife and my children and my brother praying for me. You lied to me. I now know that my wife is alive and physically well. I know that my sons are with her. I also know that they are still in Christ. So I am not signing anything. His persecutors continued to discourage and silence him. Dmitri remained faithful. He was overwhelmed one day by a special gift from God's hand. In the prison yard he found a whole sheet of paper. And God, Dmitri said, had laid a pencil beside it. Dmitri went on. I rushed back to my cell and I wrote every scripture reference, every Bible verse, every story and every song I could recall. I knew that it was probably foolish, Dmitri told me. But I still couldn't help myself. I filled both sides of the paper with as much of the Bible as I could. I reached up and stuck the entire sheet of paper on that wet concrete pillar. Then I stood and looked at it. To me, it seemed like the greatest offering I could give Jesus from my prison cell. Of course, my jailer saw it, and I was beaten and punished. I was threatened with execution. Dmitri was dragged from his cell. As he was dragged down the corridor in the center of the prison... The strangest thing happened. Before they reached the door leading to the courtyard, before stepping out into the place of execution, 1,500 hardened criminals stood at attention by their beds. They faced the east, and they began to sing. Dmitri told me it sounded to him like the greatest choir in all of human history. 1,500 criminals raised their arms and began to sing the heart song 
that they had heard Dimitri sing to Jesus every morning for all those years. Dimitri's jailers instantly released their hold on his arms and stepped away from him in terror. One of them demanded to know, Who are you? Dimitri straightened his back and stood as tall and as proud as he could. He responded, I am a son of the living God, and Jesus is his name. The guards returned him to his cell. Sometime later, Dimitri was released, and he returned to his family. I don't know... I don't know what that story does for you or how clear you were able to understand all of it, but I don't know. I've listened to it a handful of times and I'm just challenged by it. There's a number of things um, that come to mind from it. His obvious love for the Word of God, that he would face all kinds of things for just being able to write a few references on a scrap of paper his dedication to worshiping God every morning, standing and singing no matter what the 1,500 people around him said. I actually had to think of uh, Daniel in this. Anyone else think of that? Uh, Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. It's now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house and his windows being opened in his chamber toward Jerusalem. He kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had done aforetime. It didn't matter what the cost was. They knew what God wanted of them, both Dimitri and Daniel. So how does that connect to the things I shared earlier? You know, we're not facing persecution like that. Uh, I doubt if that'll um, not sure how to say this. I guess I'll go ahead. I'm not sure if that'll even happen in my lifetime. I'm not trying to speak prophetically there, but it just uh, short of the end of the world coming, I don't see that happening. The kind of persecution that Dimitri faced there. Um, So, how does this apply to us here? The reason I share both of those stories, mentioned Daniel there and also the story about Dimitri, is they were sold out to God no matter the consequences. They'd live for Him and do what pleased Him no matter the cost. When I was thinking about redeeming the time, this is the kind of thing I had in mind taking every opportunity that is afforded us to fulfill that call of being a reconciler. That doesn't mean every time you have a chance to talk to somebody, you're going to find somebody getting converted. But, again, it's putting one step or one foot in front of the other, one step at a time. Um... I heard a number this last couple days. Was it? Was it like seven times somebody would hear? You remember that? 
I think it's like seven times that somebody would hear, would needs to hear, um, needs to hear the truth from the Word of God before they. Not quite sure how that statistic all played out there. Before they would get converted, before they would make a decision, but um, we need to be intentional about it, and it, it will cost us. This isn't intended to be um, a rebuke or an indictment. This is something that God's been speaking to me about. Um, I want it to be an encouragement to us as a body to live for something higher. To strive to fulfill our job as reconcilers. That's what God called us to be. Reconcilers of the loss. So again, we may not be facing the persecution that they faced, or that thousands of Christians face even today around the world. But they were willing to give even their life for the cause. What are we willing to give up? Um... This little picture I drew here on the board, you might remember it from this last weekend, um, is a crossroads between reality, I don't know if this is how they meant it there at the conference, but it's what came to my mind. There's a crossroads between reality and our ambitions many times. What we want to do, what we know is right to do maybe, um, our dreams or ambitions. And I thought about it like this, our... uh, are dreams and ambitions coming to a crossroad with reality, or are they walking together? Are we? What I mean by that is, we all know that that this is the right thing. You know, we're supposed to be ambassadors, reconcilers, but are we doing it? Is it just an ambition? Is it just something we know we need to do? But what are we? What decisions are we making each day to make that happen? And. I guess as closing question, what sacrifices can I make in this next week? In order to fulfill that calling of being a reconciler. And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. So I'll leave you with that.